When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Grant Golub, and I'm a new host here on the Diplomatic History Channel with New Books Network. Uh, For my first show, uh, we'll be welcoming Simon Miles, who is an assistant professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University, and we'll be talking his new book. We'll be talking about his new book, which just came out last fall, called Engaging the Evil Empire, Washington, Moscow, and the Beginning of the End of the Cold War. And in the book, Simon makes the argument that uh, in order to understand the end of the Cold War and why it ended the way it did and uh, why it ended when it did, we need to understand the beginning of the final decade of the Cold War, which is the 1980s, where in Simon's um, excellent book, he talks about how uh, the period from 1980 to 1985 really sort of laid the groundwork for the rapid transformation of the international system that happened at the end of the 1980s and the early 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which left the United States as the world's sole remaining superpower. So, Simon, thanks so much for uh, for coming on today and, and for being my first guest. Grant, thanks so much for having me. I'm honored doubly, uh, not just to be here, but also to be uh, your first guest. So I'm looking forward to to talking about the book with you. And I'm a, I'm an avid listener of the New Books Network uh, myself. So it's a real pleasure to be here to share my my book with everyone. Thank you. Um, so I guess to to begin, I, it would make sense for us to talk about in in your own words, you know, what you what you see as sort of the main arguments of the book, and, and really telling our listeners um, what really this book is all about. Well, the book for me was really rooted in a puzzle. Uh, and this puzzle goes back a long time in sort of my my fledgling career as a historian, which had to do with the end of the Cold War, as you said. I never really understood how we got from first the so-called death of detente, uh, usually pegged to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as the culmination of a longer process, uh, of course, during the Carter years. And then the real sort of feel-good end of the Cold War story of Reagan and Gorbachev, the cooperation which characterizes the end of the Cold War and has become you know, a textbook case of rivals putting aside their differences. And I say textbook advisedly, in, in a lot of our textbooks, that's the example, uh, is that if, if the Americans and the Soviets can do it, uh, so, can, so can others. So how did we get from this confrontation to this cooperation? Uh, 
Uh, and the initial sort of explanations didn't really help me a lot because on the one hand, those years were not years of sort of gradual change in a lot of the literature. Rather, it's the so-called Second Cold War, right? Reagan goes on the ideological and military offensive. Uh, they're the years of gerontocracy in the Soviet Union when an aging Brezhnev, an aging Andropov, an aging Chernyenko uh, all sort of die in, in rapid succession. So this didn't make sense to me. It seemed to me that something had to have happened during the intervening years, the first half of the 1980s, when the conventional wisdom wasn't telling us that side of the story. So I went looking in the archives in the U.S. and in Russia and in their allies, and we can talk a little bit more about the the archival work underpinning the work. But, uh, but, but there are basically three big arguments that I make in the book. Uh, and so the first is the one that you, you graciously highlighted already. That is that the key to understanding the speed and the scope of the changes at the end of the 1980s, the end of the Cold War, lies in the beginning of that decade, which I sort of cheekily frame as the beginning of the end of the Cold War in the title. And there are two big shifts that I trace in the book. So first, the shift from a balance of power perceived to favor the Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1980s to one more accurately understood as favoring the United States by the decade's midpoint, but also a shift from a war of words, but also back-channel dialogue between the superpowers at the beginning to the overt dialogue and symmetry which characterize our understanding of the end of the Cold War. The second big argument I make has to do with Ronald Reagan himself. And a lot of listeners will probably be familiar with the heated debates about whether Reagan was a strategist at all, right? Some would question whether he was intellectually capable of formulating strategy, um, whereas others say that he had this master plan to end the Cold War. Uh, and in the book, I argue that Reagan implemented, to varying degrees of success, a dual-track grand strategy for U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union, which shaped both of the aforementioned processes, uh, but also which was hard to kind of come to grips with for a lot of people, including in the Reagan administration at this time. And I sort of frame the two, the two tools that the president used as, on the one hand, peace through strength, through strength the arms build up, etc., uh, and on the other hand, quiet diplomacy. Uh, the heretofore really unknown negotiations going on between the United States and the Soviet Union. Then the third big point I make in the book has to do with the Soviets, and that is that Moscow had a grand strategy of its own, right? That the Soviets were actors, not just reacting to American policy. And the basic grand strategy actually echoes the core of Soviet military doctrine. This is also at the core of Russian military doctrine today, which is using space to buy time. In other words, reducing tensions between the superpowers to create breathing space across all four of the leaders who, uh, who characterized the 1980s, Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernyenko, and of course, Mikhail Gorbachev. So I frame these years in the Soviet Union not just as years of stagnation and gerontocracy, but ones in which the Soviet leadership was actively pursuing a strategy of their own. 
Right. And so before we sort of, I think, talk more about the arguments, I think it's important to sort of talk about maybe perhaps invertedly a little bit the challenges of writing a book like this, uh, specifically right now in terms of the challenges of, of talking about Ronald Reagan, because uh, as as you and I and our and our listeners are well aware of, you know, the the public image or the historical image that Reagan today uh, has in sort of the American consciousness, I think, is quite um, politically informed um, and and sort of maybe divorced from what actually happened during his presidency. And so I was curious to know if you could talk about when you were sort of researching and then writing this book, you know, how did you sort of confront uh, this, I think, public image that Reagan has, especially on the right in the United States? And, and sort of how did you sift through that as you were trying to sort of recreate the historical Reagan that you, that you present in the book? So there's a couple of answers to that question, really. Um, so the basic answer uh, is that I have a really useful cop-out which is that I'm Canadian. <laughs> and so I have no dog in this fight. Right. Um, I, I, I approach the Reagan presidency as, uh, as an outsider. Um, it's not a period through which I lived uh, either. So I don't have kind of my own uh, impressions thereof. But of course, you're absolutely right, Grant, that this is a politically charged uh, president. And he's sort of the avatar of American exceptionalism for better or for worse, right? To, to many, uh, to many people. So I didn't enter this pro embark on this project with, uh, very strong views on the Reagan presidency, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and also, it's a book about a piece of foreign policy. So I think I say something to this effect in the introduction uh, that, you know, if this weren't just, I come out with a, a favorable view of Reagan, uh, without a doubt in the book. Uh, and that's based on U.S.-Soviet policy, which I think was successful and I think uh, helped to bring about uh, the peaceful end of the Cold War. Uh, that being said, if this were a book about all of Reagan's foreign policy, it would be an even more mixed bag. And if it were a book about all of Reagan's policies writ large, it would be even more uh, of, a, of a mixed uh, assessment. So I've certainly found it interesting to present this argument to audiences. Uh, and the thing that's been most striking to me uh, have been the folks who lived through the 1980s, uh, who formed strong, uh, I think it's fair to say negative uh, opinions about Ronald Reagan and who say, who say to me after I'll, I'll give a talk or something like that, uh, you know, this is really interesting because this is a side of it that I never saw before, right? I didn't know that he was running back channels with the Soviet Union. I didn't know that this is what the Soviets made of him. Um, it's interesting to see the, pro the president in a, in a different light. Um, and that, I think, is something that comes out in the book as a bit more of a measured approach to foreign policy, imperfect, absolutely, that you get from the archival uh, record. And I, I should just say that you know this is increasingly doable for the 80s. Uh, access is opening up more and more and more uh, for the Reagan presidency. And I think we're going to see a lot more books that take a bit more of a balanced 
uh, view of, of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. policy in the 80s, uh, thanks to that increasing access and, access and probably also the benefit of a little distance. Right. I, I, and I, I agree with that as well. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think just now is what you were saying was that uh, we're sort of entering a period where Reagan is sort of being reconsidered. Uh, as a historical actor, as a president, not someone who's just sort of invoked for political purposes in modern discourse today, um, which I think is actually happening less so in part because of, I think, the political atmosphere in the United States over the last few years. Um, it, but now that the the records are opening up and historians and political scientists and others are sort of starting to come to grips more with what exactly was happening during the 1980s and what Ronald Reagan's place in all of it was, um, I think that you're right. We'll sort of start seeing a more balanced uh, portrait of him, which, you know, with books like yours is already starting to emerge. Um, talking more about sort of Reagan himself, because you, of course, really do center him in this book um, to a considerable extent. And like you said, one of your main arguments is about him and his grand strategy and him as a strategist. Um, did how much of, of Reagan's strategy, you know, in your research and when you were writing the book, how much of it did you find was his personal conception of uh, the Soviet Union and international relations? How much of it was sort of the product of his advisors or those around him? Uh, you know, did you find that his perceptions of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, in the late 1970s and then in the early 80s after he becomes president, were they... Um, you know, accurate in the sense that uh, he sort of really had a, an understanding of what was happening in the world, or or did you find that he was sort of maybe borrowing more from from other people who were sort of in his ear? Well, Reagan, first and foremost, is a really tough president uh, to uh, for historians um, because whereas you have figures like, for example, his immediate predecessor, Jimmy Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter is very present on the page. That is to say, if you go to the Carter Library in Atlanta, you can see clearly what he's read. You can see notes or just underlines or things like that. You can you really see the evidence of him being uh, engaged with the paperwork. Of course, the gold standard for this is Margaret Thatcher, uh, who is all over the, the paper that she, that she saw, um, offering grammatical corrections, uh, and also policy opinions, uh, to the people who write for her. Uh, that's not Ronald Reagan, not by a long shot. And also a lot of the places that you would go to try to find him, uh, he's only variably present. So for example, NSC meetings, right? Meetings of the National Security Council. Uh, Reagan frequently said little to nothing and certainly little to nothing of substance uh, at, at these meetings, uh, which is tough because you're looking for the president uh, to say, okay, I've heard the competing views from the different agencies, state, DOD, etc., and this is my determination. Uh, and it just doesn't happen that way. Dating back to his time as, as governor of California, Reagan really favored a very, let's say, consensus-based approach to policymaking, uh, which ultimately resulted in multiple people with multiple incompatible views walking out of a meeting, believing that the president had endorsed theirs and given them the green light to go ahead. 
So where do we see Reagan? For that, I actually looked a little bit to the pre his pre-presidential period, as you said, even further back than when he was, for example, running against Gerald Ford for the Republican nomination in 76, but actually to his time when he was basically General Electric's spokesman at large. Uh, he worked for GE, he would travel, he would go on the radio, he would give these talks just about current events, contemporary issues. He had no staff. Uh, this was him writing for, you know, he was writing his own text, uh, which doesn't happen a lot when you're the president, but certainly was the case during that time in his life, uh, and also into the 70s. And it looked to me like uh, there were these two big strains in his approach. Uh, so one, he was a committed anti-communist, dating back to his time uh, in actually the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, he and a lot of people in, in the labor movement were really frustrated by sort of communist efforts to penetrate, infiltrate, usurp, co-opt uh, the labor movement. Ernest Bevan, the British foreign secretary, had a very similar tra trajectory, actually, uh, in his experiences as a trade union leader dealing with communists, as Reagan did. So there was a strong anti-communism there. But there was also a sense that uh, simply applying maximum pressure wouldn't achieve the results that Reagan wanted. And make no, make no mistake about it, uh, what he wanted was, if not the total breakdown of the Soviet Union, then the transformation of Soviet policy uh, in pretty fundamental uh, ways. His goals were quite maximalist uh, in that regard. The famous Reagan line, what are your goal? You know, what do you want from the Cold War? We win, they lose. Uh, really holds true uh, here. So I looked at those early pre-presidential uh, items of evidence, and then I turned to his letters. And Reagan wrote as president an enormous quantity of letters uh, to friends, to associates from Hollywood, to other political figures, of course. And there, too, in these more unmediated texts, uh, I could see these two kind of carrot and stick elements of American foreign policy really pretty clearly, pretty vividly illustrated. Uh, and elsewhere as well, some in more formal uh, documents, including some of the national security decision directives uh, of the presidency. So that was that was kind of how I came to see uh, the dual track grand strategy that I that I characterize in the book as being something that really is a product of the president's own imagination. Where it was most successfully in, implemented, though was when he also had partners around him who shared that basic vision of U.S.-Soviet relations. Uh, and here I'm thinking primarily of George H.W. Bush, his vice president, uh, Jack Matlock, his national security council, the senior director for Russia and Europe, uh, and also, of course, critically, George Shultz. Uh, the second secretary of state, who also saw that kind of dynamic as being a useful tool in the American arsenal. Something that really struck me when I was reading, when I was rereading the book, actually, in preparation for this interview, was how similar Reagan was to, to Franklin Roosevelt in terms of his elusiveness as president and trying to 
determine what he actually thought about something. I mean, just as you were talking right now and you said, you know, different advisors who had very different conceptions about whatever issue it was that they were talking about might leave a meeting thinking that the president had agreed with them or signed off on their on their policy. It's something that Roosevelt always used to do quite famously, which I think led <laughs> and, and people would think that he agreed with them. And in, and in most cases, he wouldn't at all. He would just sort of make them think that. Um, I guess he, to some degree, Roosevelt did that purposefully because he found some sort of usefulness in, I think, deceiving people, uh, even his allies, into uh, about what he actually thought. I mean, it's it's very difficult, I think, to determine this, but did you get a sense at all that Reagan was doing something similar or it was more Reagan just, you know, was not someone who tended to be very confrontational with his with his advisors or with people around him and, and then just kind of let them think what they wanted to think? I think it's the latter. You know, in, okay. in his wife Nancy's memoir, Nancy Reagan writes about how he abhorred confrontation, uh, how he was actually not really very gregarious, you know, despite being an actor and a politician, um, he was actually a fairly withdrawn person. I think at one point she actually refers to him as a loner, a bit of a loner, um, who was careful about sharing his real feelings uh, with too many people that he, he liked to play his cards uh, close to his chest, not uh, f- as a for poker player type reasons, uh, but rather because he really didn't like uh, conflict. And so, you know, this was, for example, made him, him and Alexander Haig, his first secretary of state, oil and water, right? Haig loved bureaucratic infighting. Um, He ultimately wasn't as good at it as he thought he was, uh, but he would would regularly be the catalyst that brought NSC meetings and other uh, engagements in the Oval Office to the brink of shouting matches. Uh, And this just wasn't Reagan's style at all. Now, there is a lot of evidence that this isn't a good thing. Uh, That's for sure. Uh, So I I don't raise that uh, to applaud uh, Reagan's style. I think you can see that it creates problems and issues in executing foreign policy. But for his t- entire time in Sacramento as California's governor and also in, in Washington in the White House, uh, that's his style. He, he, he holds back uh, and then sort of indicates later on in a more private venue what's to be done going forward. Right. It, something that, that Bill Brands talks about in his biography of Reagan is that when, specifically when Reagan was governor of California, as you just mentioned, that Reagan, when he was sort of done with the day, he sort of tended to like to have dinner in front of the TV, you know, with like a dinner tray and not really uh, interact with anyone who wasn't, who wasn't his wife. And that if he had to sort of have other politicians over to the governor's mansion or he had to go to meetings. He apparently used to complain about that quite incessantly because he didn't really like talking to very many people after he was done working. So it was sort of interesting to um, to think about that. Um, something that just switching gears a little bit, you know, you talk a lot in the book about uh, perception and, and perhaps misperception and, and something that I think you touch on quite frequently that I wanted to sort of unpack with you right now is this idea that at the beginning of the 1980s, someone who was in the Warsaw Pact, someone who was in the Kremlin, would reasonably think that the Soviets had the upper hand uh, in the Cold War and that the balance of power favored 
the Soviet Union, whereas by the middle of the decade, by 1985, or perhaps even earlier, uh, an Eastern policymaker could not be under any such illusion that the balance of power had decisively favored the United States was, I think, the terminology that you had used. I was wondering if you could talk about this idea of perception versus reality and balance of power. This is something that historians, especially of international relations or of American foreign policy, talk a lot about uh, perception of balance of power versus the reality of balance of power. I think John Lewis Gaddis talks a lot about it, for example, in Strategies of Containment. But what is really the difference between your perception of the balance of power versus what it actually is? Because I think, you know, you talk about this in the book, if both sides think that one person or or one country rather was was sort of coming out ahead, uh, how is that different from it being what it is, quote unquote, in reality, if, if everyone sort of believes that? Well, you're absolutely right, Grant, that, that policy is made by people and people are subject to perception and misperception. Um, and of course, in addition to uh, the works you cited here, uh, my thinking was shaped a lot by Bob Jervis's uh, wonderful work on perception and misperception in international politics. And I think what's interesting about the early 1980s in particular is how quickly that changes. Uh, Half a decade, you have uh, the seesaw changing ends completely. That's, that's quite something. And, uh, and also how wrong it was, uh, especially at the very beginning, you know, Reagan, just to go back to our earlier conversation about the public memory of Reagan today, right? He's sort of the sunny days president. Uh, you know, America can do anything. Um, morning in America, right? The 1984 famous uh, campaign ad about it's, it's morning in America. The Ronald Reagan of 1980, of the 1980 presidential campaign is totally at odds with this. Ronald Reagan of the 1980 presidential campaign is out there saying the Soviets are winning the Cold War. And and his evidence for this was partly based on the nuclear balance, uh, which partly was based also on the economic situation in the United States. Uh, But I think this has to do with the basic fact that we're not always really good at identifying what the biggest future historical issues through which we're living are. And so in the 1970s, that was the problems of the American and Western economies at that time, right? This panic at the pump, not enough gas. Um, Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, which one was largely autarkic uh, and two was an exporter of, of pet of hydrocarbons because uh, because of their uh, oil fields and their natural gas fields uh, was actually sitting pretty uh, throughout all of this it seemed immune to all of those what people didn't think about was the dynamism of an economy that is globally integrated not to say that that doesn't come with some downsides uh, but that this offered much more uh, optimistic, 
prognoses for growth and what that economy could do in microchips and things like that, which would ultimately turn that quantitatively superior Soviet arsenal. These are the gold days of kind of the actuarial nuclear strategy, right? Throw weights and things like that, lift capability, um, that, that miniaturization uh, would ultimately make American weaponry much, much more lethal. And that miniaturization came from the innovation that you got in the U.S. economy. So people make policy, but people are, are, are uh, fallible. And so what mattered at the beginning was perception. Right? That shaped American policy. Uh, what mattered at the end of my book, that is to say at the beginning of the end of the Cold War, was the fact that perception and reality had, had both kind of focused in on a shared set of assumptions about the global balance of power. And that's where you have the key role of an individual like Mikhail Gorbachev. But of course, I spend a lot of time in the book talking not about Gorbachev, but about Yuri Andropov. Uh, and Andropov, who had, had been the head of the KGB before uh, assuming the, the highest leadership position in the Soviet Union, he knew how dire, how dire the Soviets' economic, political, military, diplomatic straits really were. Everyone around him wasn't yet convinced. So the interplay of perception and reality uh, and the subjectivity of policymaking is, as you say, a theme that runs throughout the book. Did you find when you were researching and writing this book, because I think that, and perhaps I'm misinterpreting this, but the sense that I got from, from reading the book was that a lot of the perception uh, that a Kremlin policymaker might have had in, in the early 1980s when Reagan became president was that the Soviets had the upper hand in the Cold War at that time, not so much because of what was happening in the Soviet Union, but because how weak the United States and the West seemed to be. Um, it, w- would you say that that's what, largely what was driving it, or were they also confident in what was happening in the Soviet Union as well? I mean, you cited, for example, their seeming immunity from the oil shocks of the 70s, given the fact that Soviets were a major oil producer, but were there other sort of domestic factors in the Soviet economy or in Soviet society that was giving Soviet policymakers or Warsaw Pact policymakers additional evidence uh, to make them think that perhaps the, the balance of power had shifted in their favor? Only to a limited extent. You're absolutely right that the sort of the sources of Soviet confidence, uh, the sources of Eastern Bloc confidence at this time are primarily military. They have to do with their nuclear force posture and capabilities. They also have to do with the conventional arms balance of power uh, in Europe. Uh, And also some of the evidence from, for example, NATO of really acute existential threats to the alliance over the question of uh, intermediate range nuclear forces and the modernization of, of U.S. missiles in Europe being driving a huge wedge within the Atlantic alliance, of course, with great help uh, from the Soviets and their Eastern Bloc allies, uh, who were only too happy to uh, try to exploit those divisions uh, to the greatest extent possible. But it's certainly the case that no Soviet policymaker was looking at the Soviet economy and thinking, this is great. 
this is a, a dynamic, wonderful economy, uh, which is absolutely going to serve us well. You look at a country like Hungary at this point, and its leaders are thinking to themselves that they need to enact some degree of market reform. This is the famous goulash communism uh, in Hungary. Uh, of course, in China, even more famously, Deng Xiaoping is, implement, is beginning to implement these types of modifications and reforms in economic policy. Soviet leaders aren't there yet, uh, and they're not thinking about that yet. They really don't doubt that their economy can kind of keep muddling along uh, as as well as it needs to in order to support their really titanic military machine. Um, just because you you just mentioned um, China, I was wondering, you know, what you thought uh, China's role in this in this story that you tell in the book. You know, where they lie because. You know, obviously, China is still or is becoming even more of a prominent actor in this period. The United States and China had normalized diplomatic relations in 1979 under under Reagan's predecessor, Jimmy Carter. You know, where do you think China sort of fits in into this this puzzle for for both the United States and the Soviet Union? Um, you know, were they were they sort of left out of it more, or, or was there were they central to the calculations because? Something I find when we talk about the history of, I, I guess, modern United States uh, People's Republic of China relations is that the, the China relations under Reagan often doesn't get talked about. You sort of have, of course, Nixon famously going to China. Then you sort of have the normalization period under his uh, uh, successors, excuse me, and then uh, relations get normalized in 79. And then it's sort of oftentimes it just seems to skip ahead to the 90s when or rather to Tiananmen in, in 89. So, you know, where does, where do you think China fits in, into all of this for, but for both sides, the U S and the Soviets? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Grant, that there's a lot of work to be done on U S Chinese relations during the 1980s. Uh, it's a, it's rich, fertile ground and, and people are already starting to till it. So that's exciting. I think we're going to get a lot of people who in future podcasts can give much more intelligent answers than the one that I'm about to give. Uh, but the way I see it, at least in the context of, of researching this book, uh, is that on the one hand, you have a Reagan administration, which is interested in improving relations. Don't forget that George H.W. Bush, the president, had been the United States' de facto ambassador to China for some time. Uh, and so he had real knowledge, deep knowledge on uh, U.S.-Chinese relations and, and a, a pretty rich understanding of the People's Republic. Um, that being said, at the same time, the Soviet Union's, Union is increasingly wary of what the Chinese are doing. And so in early documents that I was getting out of various Eastern Bloc archives, uh, there was a lot of consternation about what looked like a, a fledgling U.S.-Chinese rapprochement at this time. And a lot of worry in the Kremlin and other capitals, East Berlin, Prague, about what a sort of united front uh, of not only the American uh, imperialists, but the, the Maoist hegemonists, I think is the, the term that one uh, diplomat used to describe the PRC. Uh, what would happen if they started to present a united front and challenge uh, the Soviet Union? So they could see 
this shift. Uh, and of course, that shift is not fully realized during the Reagan years uh, of the Chinese gravitating uh, to a certain extent towards the United States and towards opening up uh, to the West in a way that totally left out the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's it's very interesting how, you know, as you say, a lot of this is not, you know, it's quite fertile ground for future historians because, you know, it, it does seem to be a very large period where, you know, China is under under dung, like starting to really undergo this rapid or, yeah, I get rapid transformation throughout the decade between the late 70s and then, of course, the early uh, 90s. Um, Sort of looking more now at sort of the within the Eastern Bloc, you know, because you know you, you just mentioned it, but you also talk about it in the book about how your research for this book brought you to you know countries all over the world. You know, of course, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but uh, looking at you know countries in Eastern Europe, but also looking at uh, Western allies, countries in Western Europe and, and Canada uh, and and Australia and New Zealand. So within the Eastern Bloc. Did you find that the perceptions of what was happening in the United States or, you know, the overall East-West relationship, how did those diverge or perhaps converge, depending on the circumstance, between uh, what was, you know, between Kremlin perceptions or Kremlin policies and, and individual Eastern European countries in terms of how they viewed the United States? Because I think that even though as historians, we understand that these is not a mon- these are not a, the Eastern Bloc is not a monolith. I think maybe other people um, sort of aren't, don't talk about it with uh, with that level of nuance that they should. Well, I think this is a really important point. You know, if you look at some of the classic works in the political science literature on alliance politics, um, they will fairly uniformly say that the Warsaw Pact, at the time most of these were written, which was a going concern, uh, doesn't count for this. It's a transmission belt for Soviet policy. Uh, Moscow says jump, and the allies, its allies already know how high. They don't even ask. Um, whereas NATO is, you know, as an alliance of democracies, is uh, dynamic, contested, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And look, to be very, very explicit, uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, Eastern Europe during the Cold War was secretly a bastion of pluralism, and uh, and there are real differences in how uh, Washington, as the preponderant figure in NATO, behaved and how it would it how others responded to it than there were to how the Soviet Union behaved uh, in the Warsaw Pact. That being said, you get these really interesting episodes which don't fit that narrative. So if the Warsaw Pact is so top-down, how is it that Albania can quit in the 1960s, right? Basically, in 1960, they effectively leave, and then the pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68 is the is the the nail in the coffin how do you get a character like nicolau ceausescu the leader of romania who is running a a very independent foreign policy for all of these years uh that's a more complicated beast than the straightforward top-down story would would indicate and so during just the years that i cover in the book You have, for example, East Germany 
saying to the Soviet Union, we are missing the boat on China. This is a massive market for our goods. Eric Honecker, who was no softy uh, on any policy issues, uh, Eric Honecker is saying we need to work things out with the Chinese and find some kind of condominium because, let's be honest, the West is not interested in our goods. They're not a viable export market. We can't compete with their products. The Chinese might be interested. We need to open up to China as opposed to trying to continue to present a united front against them. And Honecker's East Germany does that out of its own economic self-interest. These are the years in which Ceausescu is basically ransoming his signature on Warsaw Pact uh, meeting communiques for oil. If, if, the, this, if the Soviets don't provide a quantity of oil at you know, a certain significant discount uh, on market prices, then he's just not going to sign uh, some of these kind of, what we think of as formality documents, but he uses the need for the perception of unanimity and solidarity in his favor in order to extract concessions uh, out of out of a Kremlin which is not really able to resist. So there's different perspectives on on the way the world is working. And in the book, I cite pretty frequently meetings of Warsaw Pact uh, leaders, foreign ministers, and defense ministers. And you see these amazing consensuses forming, such as, for example, when the defense ministers in 1983 say we have no means of repelling a Western invasion of Eastern Europe short of strategic nuclear war. All of these massive conscript mobilization armies that we have built are useless against Western technological superiority. The only thing we have is our nuclear trump card. Uh, and we're going to escalate to sort of civilization extinguishing levels of, of uh, nuclear exchange in order to actually do something about that. This is a pretty significant admission, considering how much is being spent on building up, building up the Warsaw Pact's conventional, allegedly deterrent capabilities uh, in Europe, and they reach it uh, together. So... The long and the short of it is that these are also significant voices in the kind of conversation about ending the Cold War. I don't try to hide the fact that I think that the United States and the Soviet Union are the loudest and most important voices as the superpowers. But I think that we can see that it's really about more than just that. Within both alliances, I mean, how responsive do did you find or do you think uh, the superpowers were to their alliance partners? I mean, I, I would tend to think that it probably would, of course, depend. But within the context of, of East-West relations, I mean, you have them obviously voicing their concerns, the various allies. But did you find that the superpowers were tended to be responsive? Was it more mixed or was it more, you know, we're going to ignore what they're saying, but, but at least hear them out? Well, so let's take one example, okay? Um, and that has to do with the Soviet plan to build a natural gas pipeline from the Yamal Peninsula in Siberia uh, to sell that gas to uh, Europe. And I, I say Europe without modifier, both East 
and West. This is, of course, a, a, not a, an arcane uh, policy issue today either. Uh, when we think about Nord's about the construction of Nord Stream Two, so the Reagan administration is watching this happen against the backdrop of the crackdown and imposition of martial law in Poland uh, over the solidarity uh, over the solidarity uh, movement in that country, uh, and they see the Soviet pipeline as a fantastic opportunity to not only make the Soviets pay for the imposition of martial law in Poland, but also cut off an access uh, of hard currency that the Soviets would clearly desperately needed. There's a problem, and that is that significant portions of this pipeline were going to be built by European companies, uh, Caterpillar, uh, John Brown Engineering in the UK, and so on and so forth. And so it's actually because of NATO allies' consternation, and above all, uh, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, over American sanctions that the Reagan administration abandons this project. And you can see that this was something that Reagan believed in from how he talked about it at NSC meetings, where he didn't often talk early on in this, and then he gives it up because of pressure from allies. Yeah, okay, so that that's interesting. I mean, you, because you, I, I think a lot of times, I mean, especially within the, the context of, of modern political discourse today, especially over the last several years, you have this sort of image of the United States or uh, I guess, yes, specifically the United States ignoring its allies' concerns. But, you know, as you're just making the case now and in the book, it's it's often a lot more nuanced and complicated than that, where the U.S. is not immune to what other countries, especially its European uh, allies, are thinking about in terms of policy. Something that uh, you, I think, maybe not as explicitly in the book, but in, in perhaps some of your other work have been quite critical of is this idea of the second Cold War. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that in terms of not only how this idea has really sort of taken root in our understanding of the Cold War in general, of this sort of period of rising tension in the late 70s and early 80s, but also um, you know, where that came about and why exactly you think it needs, uh, it needs rethinking. Well, I think part of the answer to your question, Grant, has to do with your earlier question about popular perceptions of Reagan, right? And it's beyond a doubt that Reagan said some very nasty things about the Soviets. You know, in his first press conference as president, he talks about how they'll lie, cheat, and steal in order to get what they want. Uh, he, of course, delivers famous speeches talking about consigning communism to the ash heap of history, uh, about the Soviet Union being an evil empire, and so on and so forth. So when I take on the image of a second Cold War, I don't deny that any of those things happened, of course. The argument that I make is that they weren't the whole story. And that's a part of the story that it takes time to excavate. It takes the opening of archival materials in order to excavate to uncover, you know, I highlight some back channels uh, in Madrid or Berlin or in Yugoslavia that are going on between high level officials uh, in both, in both States. Those were not known by most members of the public. And indeed they're, they're very little known today uh, because the, the records of them are, are spotty and buried and, and difficult to access. So, so my, 
my argument against the Second Cold War uh, sort of paradigm for understanding the first half of the 1980s is that it's only part of the story. It's a story of carrots, uh, of sticks, rather. It's, it's the sort of the story of sticks and there are no carrots. Uh, and in the book, I try to highlight how Reagan used both. And when you, you, you see how he was using both and how his administration was deploying both, I think it's hard to sustain the argument that this was just U.S.-Soviet confrontation because we see a lot of evidence of the uses of diplomacy all throughout it and reassurance uh, between the two parties. And in fact, this is acknowledged by both. So one of the episodes I discuss in the book has to do with the visit of George H.W. Bush to the Soviet Union in late 1982 to attend the funeral of Leonid Brezhnev uh, and uh, to meet with the new Soviet general secretary, Yuri Andropov. And Andropov says something pretty extraordinary to Bush during their meeting. When Andropov says, and I'm of course paraphrasing here, uh, you know, we need to say nasty stuff about one another in order to satisfy our domestic political constituencies. You need to do it. I need to do it. And Andropov certainly wasn't above it. The next year he, he, he authors or his name is attached to a piece in Pravda in which Reagan is compared to Adolf Hitler. So this was clearly something he was prepared to do uh, in the service of his, his own political aims. But, Andropov says, we need to know that that's what we're doing, and we need to take seriously our responsibility as nuclear powers. There's a lot of language about the responsibility of, of being a nuclear power in Soviet documents from this, from this time period, including uh, records of their conversations with the United States. And so this is a really important episode. Right where they're saying yes, there are these atmospherics, and the Soviets weren't above uh, ginning up some of that kind of war scare atmosphere themselves uh, in order to further their their domestic political aims. But we need to take seriously the fact that we actually have to talk, and we do talk as superpowers with a, a, a special trust uh, in our nuclear arsenals. So that's my that's my. Counter, uh, counter argument to the second Cold War characterization is that that's only half the story. Right. I mean, just because you were, you, were, you were mentioning it right now about sort of the domestic political side of, of this story, I mean, what sense did you get in, in working on this book that a lot of, for example, the public rhetoric that's not only coming out of the Reagan administration, but out of Reagan himself how much of that is rooted in strict or you know uh, strong ideological belief? How much of that is rooted in uh, thinking about the domestic political considerations of American Soviet policy? And then also on the flip side as well, talk, you know what you were just saying with Andropov. How much of uh, a lot of the public posturing is is more political as opposed to ideological in terms of formulating? foreign policy. I mean, did you find that a lot of the things, especially that Reagan was doing in the beginning in trying to implement the peace through strength part of his grand strategy, how much of that really was rooted in domestic political considerations? Well, I think a great deal was, for example, the arms buildup 
there are some fascinating documents from the campaign where they're talking about an arms buildup as not only uh, a useful uh, political tool, that is to say Carter is weak on communism, we're going to build up American power, uh, not only as a useful political tool uh, in the sense that they would kind of get over the so-called Vietnam syndrome of the 1970s and so on and so forth, but also as a useful political tool because it would create jobs. Right. So there, there are memoranda by the likes of Dick Cheney that are basically espousing Keynesian economics and counter-cyclical spending which are striking to come across uh, in the records of the Reagan administration. So there's that element. But then also, how do we disaggregate a president making a, uh, a harsh anti-communist statement, which he believes personally, but also which he has reason to believe because he won an election, reflects the views of a significant proportion of Americans, um, right? That's, that's, that's a tough one to, to sort of unpack. So I don't see a lot of sort of cynical uh, political posturing. And in fact, there were those within the Reagan camp who wanted him to really tone down some of those comments. First and foremost, his wife, Nancy Reagan, who was really worried about her president's, uh, pro- uh, her husband's real pro- prospects for reelection uh, if, he, if he didn't. And those were resisted. Uh, by many, including Reagan, including George Shultz, uh, who instead thought that the president should should make his his already well known views on the Soviet Union clear. Just on the other side of the Iron Curtain with the Soviets, you do also see a keen understanding amongst policymakers, not only I should say in Moscow, but also in in Warsaw Pact states, that the image of an external enemy in this case, the United States, has real political use for them too in ensuring uh, loyalty and justifying sacrifice uh, amongst their own populations as well. Something that I think we talk a lot about just in, in terms of our understanding of presidential history is, is the discontinuity between administrations. But I think what often surprises us is how much continuity there actually is between presidential administrations, especially, especially those of, of differing political parties. So I was, I was wondering if you'd sort of talk to our listeners about maybe what some of those surprising continuities were between Carter and Reagan, especially because of how much Reagan, you know, really bludgeoned Carter for his foreign policy during the 1980 presidential election campaign. Absolutely. And we could also talk about the discontinuities between Reagan and then his former vice president, now President George H.W. Bush, which are also really interesting. Uh, So on the early end of that, you know, Jimmy Carter really starts a lot of the defense buildup. That's true without a doubt. You can just look at the numbers, right? And uh, and the programs initiated, the acquisition programs initiated uh, under the Carter administration. He also takes a very hostile line on the Soviet Union. In fact, in a lot of the records that I unearthed commenting on the 1980 election, uh, a lot of those commentators in the Eastern Bloc are saying that they think Reagan's going to be a lot easier to deal with than Jimmy Carter. Uh, 
Uh, one of them, I think this is a Czechoslovak diplomat, refers, refers to him, and I think I'm basically quoting here, as the inscrutable zigzagging Jimmy Carter. Uh, whereas Reagan seems like a practical individual, uh, even if he is a hardliner, he'll be predictable uh, in so far. But they actually really doubt that he's going to be anything as hardline as he was uh, pretending to be for, t- for the TV screens, uh, rather for the voters, uh, I should say. So in that case, you have a lot of continuity. It's amplified by Reagan. Uh, of course, the defense budget ticks up significantly, uh, so it's not as if it's just a continu- continuation of Carter's earlier spending patterns. Uh, and also, Reagan introduces a really powerful ideological element, which was never fully there uh, under the Carter administration. And if I can just take your question one step further, by the time you get to 1989 and you get the Bush administration, uh, you know, this is, and uh, this is what one of the Bush administration officials famously terms it, a hostile takeover, uh, not a sort of all-in-the-family succession plan. And they start to think that actually the Reagan administration has gone too far in cooperating with the Soviet Union. So there's a real break there, which is really jarring to Mikhail Gorbachev, who is watching this happen and is expecting perfect continuity. Old vice president, now he's the president. This is going to be easy. They just had a summit at Governor's Island. Uh, This should be really stable. Gorbachev is sort of left watching this happening, uh, confused and frustrated and angry uh, at what's going on in, in U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union. So to, to wrap up, you're absolutely right that our periodization is, I mean, it's always artificial, right? And, uh, and that's, that's uh, true even of my book starting in 1980. You could make a compelling argument uh, that it ought to start instead in 1977, uh, for example. Um, but uh, I think it's Ian McEwen who, who once said, uh, you know, that all beginnings are, are false to some extent. But what recommends one beginning over another is the story it enables you to tell. Right. I, I think it's really interesting just talking about, about the Reagan to Bush transition, about how many people, you know, as you say, it's a hostile, a hostile takeover. I mean, how many, how many new people that, that Bush brings in that don't really think about these issues of, uh, the same way at all as, as Reagan. I mean, of course, Bush is a, you know, quote unquote holdover having been Reagan's vice president, but his personal conceptions of these issues, I think are in a lot of ways really different, especially given the fact that he had such long-standing foreign policy experience being America's de facto ambassador to China, like you mentioned earlier. He had been CIA director as well, of course, having been vice president, but also having been the chairman of the Republican National Committee and a congressman. Like his his worldview has been formed very independently of Reagan. And so therefore allowed him, I think, in large part to sort of think about these issues differently. And then also you know, thinking about someone like Brent Scowcroft. Uh, who had been national security advisor under Gerald Ford uh, and also deputy national security advisor under Richard Nixon, you know, coming in and, and of course, they're starting to think about these things very differently. Dick Cheney had been secretary of defense um, versus the way that, that Reagan and his advisors 
thought about them. I always think that's really interesting and something that I think a lot of times might be lost on people, but it wasn't lost on the historical actors at the time, like you said with Gorbachev. Not in the least. You can read the transcripts of Gorbachev's phone calls in which he's, he's pleading practically for recognition um, and, and railing against the American leadership for freezing him out. Uh, so to speak, especially when compared to what he had enjoyed at the end of the the Reagan years, which was a really fairly unique partnership, given the roles that Reagan and Gorbachev played in the world at the time. Right. Talking about sort of the, the relationship that Reagan and Gorbachev had, how much of it, because you, you talk about this towards the end of the book, how much of the decision-making that Gorbachev was making perhaps post-Geneva, that first time that Reagan and Gorbachev meet in, at the end of 1985, how much of that do you think is shaped by the choices that the Reagan administration in the United States are making versus what's sort of domestically happening within the Soviet Union in terms of uh, economic decline, continuing frustration with the war in Afghanistan, and just a general sort of fall in the standard of living and in the economy, how much of that is, which factors are, of course, perhaps it's a combination is really driving Gorbachev and Soviet decision-making moving after the Geneva summit? So this is the classic tension between structure and agency, right? Was Gorbachev's policy rooted in his new thinking, or was it just the best anyone could do facing the realities of the world as Gorbachev found it in the latter half of the 1980s. And the answer that I give, and this is a, a classic historian's answer, uh, which embraces multi-causality, is the answer to the structure versus agency question, uh, at least in this case, is both. Uh, right? That you can see, for example, that a United States, which perceived itself as weak at the beginning of the 80s, was very hesitant to use diplomacy and very willing to go on the offensive in different ways. Fast forward five years, a, a Soviet Union that perceives itself as weak is desperate for any diplomatic engagement, even if it means uh, you know, taking bad terms. Look at the INF Treaty, which is a horrible deal for the Soviet Union. They'll take that deal because they need diplomacy. Gorbachev needs diplomacy in order to shore up his legitimacy. Whereas Reagan, five years earlier, didn't feel that he had enough legitimacy in order to do diplomacy. And meanwhile, the Soviet Union is walking back its military commitments to Eastern Europe. It's trying to extricate itself from the quagmire in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. So structure matters. But here in just this five-year period, we have a case study of different actors responding differently to like structural forces. And that, I think, is an important reminder for historians that, to go back to an earlier theme, people make policy, right? Perception shapes uh, what we do, uh, and thus you can have these interesting divergences and nothing is sort of foreordained. Things are contingent. So in the case of Reagan and Gorbachev, uh, I really think that we see not only shifts in perception, 
smaller shifts in sort of reality, uh, if you will. Uh, but you also have leaders taking, bringing their own preferences to those policy debates. Moving towards the end of our time together, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about, and perhaps this is a good way to conclude the conversation, if, if, a, if a current American policymaker or a policymaker really in any country for that matter, you know, was picked up your book and read it, what would you want them to sort of glean from this? I mean, a lot in terms of, without spending too much time talking in strictly political terms of what's happening in 2021 today, you know, a lot in a lot of the foreign policy discourse, especially emanating out of Washington, you talk about this coming of a new Cold War, or perhaps of a new Cold War between the United States and China. And I guess what I'm wondering is if someone like, you know, an official on the NSC or in the State Department, or, or maybe even the president himself, read your book, I mean, what would you want them to take away from this idea that, uh, you know, the Cold War was this uh, to be perhaps a little cheeky, uh, such a wonderful time for the United States because it won. And therefore, because it was sort of this quote unquote, black and white clarifying time for American policy, we should be able to go back to it because it worked out great for us. And if we did it with the Soviets, we could do it with China. I mean, that sometimes is the sense I think that some people might have in Washington. So what, what would you caution or what would you say to, to policymakers today who are thinking about U.S.-China relations within the context of, a, of an actual second Cold War? So I think if someone were to read this book and think about how they could use these historical lessons today, I think the key lesson has to do with what Reagan's foreign policy grand strategy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union actually was. And that is one which included both carrot and stick. So we talked earlier, Grant, about, you know, Reagan, the political myth, right, the lion of the Republican Party. And that's relevant today, because there are a lot of people who are advancing a narrative that that says that what Reagan did in order to successfully bring the Cold War to a conclusion, something for which I give him a lot of credit in the book, is maximum pressure. Right, he called out the Soviet Union. He delegitimized it. He built up the American military and he showed he wasn't afraid to use it, and so on and so forth. And that that this can be done by an American president today, vis-a-vis Iran or the People's Republic of China. That they just need to apply maximum pressure, and the other party will sort of bend to Washington's will. Those aren't the stories that I'm telling in this book about the Reagan years. They're part of the story, but part of the story is also keeping a diplomatic kind of safety valve in case those, uh, those disagreements escalate beyond where either side is comfortable. Keeping negotiations going and showing yourself to be a credible bargainer, even if that is largely so that later on, when you have even more leverage, you can lock those gains in through advantageous diplomatic deals. I think the success of the Reagan administration was the deft employment of both carrot and stick in foreign policy, of thinking about grand strategy as being uh, a little bit more interactive than just a a one-note uh, effort. And so I think as 
right now. The Biden administration thinks about the very real challenges with a country like China or a country like Iran or Russia today as well. They would do well to learn from what what worked for the Reagan administration. Uh, And that wasn't just applying maximum pressure. That was balancing cooperation and confrontation, right? Peace through strength, as I call it in the book, and engaging in quiet diplomacy that served the United States so well in the 1980s. Right. Well, I think that's where we'll have to leave it, Simon. So um, the book is Engaging the Evil Empire, Washington, Moscow, and the Beginning of the End of the Cold War. Uh, It came out last fall with Cornell University Press. If you enjoyed our conversation today, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy. It's a great read, um, very well written, quite succinct at the same time. You could read it in a day. uh, And it has a lot of lessons for thinking about not only the end of the Cold War, what sort of dominated the second half of the 20th century, but also thinking about American diplomacy moving forward. Simon, thank you so much for for joining me, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. Thanks, everyone. That's bye for now. We'll be back soon.